32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week, a county with a twist, Andrea. <laughs> this week's county is ye old county Brexit. <laughs> and this week's question. What do we really know about Brexit? Dark money and the DUP. Yeah, you know me. The week that was a momentous week for the north of Ireland where abortion has been decriminalised and marriage equality effectively legalised. It's been a long wait and it ended up happening due to political inaction in the north. Um, But better that it happens that way than no way at all. Obviously, do you think Sinn Féin did this on purpose? I don't saw this as a strategy for inaction. I mean, you can impose narratives in hindsight I don't yeah. know if that's how it happened I don't think they were thinking about it when Storm- Stella Creasy was doing her bits yeah um, but it is a consequence of that and um, now we're going to be on this long complicated messy road as to figuring out how um, abortion healthcare will actually be provided for in the north but right now congratulations and well done to all of the campaigners who've been really up against it there for years on marriage equality and reproductive rights such good joyous news coming from the north Um, not so joyous Uh, we crashed and burned out of the World Cup uh, in Japan so that's a stinger (laughs) (laughs) it was terrible actually it Um, was and like there's been a lot of discourse about how uh, we're like ah but sure look it was grand we did a good job and da 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 and about how we shouldn't be like that it was like you played shit though and it's like it's just the Irish spirit of like sport being more than just winning it and playing it's like the whole Irish army on tour and Joe Schmidt leaving and all that jazz I did like that tweet or something that someone says about a photo of the Irish fans in the stand that just said spot your landlord <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very good. Um, didn't play well. And we never play well, particularly in World Cups. You know, this is our sixth, what is it, a sixth or seventh time we've been booted out well, of the Well, I find stage. from like 1964, we've really... <laughs> okay. Thanks, Rugby Brent. Punditry pops in. Um, Tell what? me about yoga, your fave. <laughs> oh my God, I fucking love yoga. All my friends are so sick of listening to me talking about the joy that it brings to my life. But... Somebody who's trying to erase that joy from uh, the lives of people in school is the Bishop of Waterford, who has warned off teaching of yoga and mindfulness in schools. Like, can we all get an absolute grip of, like, I know it's kind of come up before, but the Catholic Church needs to get a grip. (laughs) But like, yoga and mindfulness, they're hardly going to take over. They're, They're not religious. Like, yoga is moving your body and breathing. It's the devil's work, Andrea. It's bananas that this shit is going on. Uh, But what's not bananas? Trudeau was voted back in in Canada with a minority government. It was kind of expected. Galway was voted fourth best city to visit by the Lonely Planet. We were discussing. (laughs) Discussing. Discussing. Discussing the merits of Ireland getting such high uh, prestige from all Lonely Planets, etc. It's just going to mean more tourists. Luckily, we have all those hotels. Yeah, just as well. Um, Okay, so here's a scandal that is going to keep rolling and rolling and rolling. And when these kind of things happen, a thread gets pulled and it will just keep on growing legs. This is the dull voting shenanigans 
which began with um, this thing between Niall Collins and Timmy Dooley um, in Fianna Fáil, one of them voting multiple times on the behalf of the other. And then Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers, who um, does all the Brexit uh, stuff for them. She, that's her portfolio. She said, actually, I also voted by mistake because I for somebody else because I was in the wrong seat. And what's interesting about this is how... TDs try to grapple with what is clearly not uncommon Mm behaviour and trying to translate that to the public without minimising what they're doing is wrong and with everybody else going you're basically doing voter fraud in the Dáil or voting on behalf of other people they're like no no sometimes people are on their phones at the back of the chamber sometimes they might just have you know you might not see them on the camera but they are actually there and we're just voting for them Um, and now Shane Ross uh, well, it's been revealed that he was referred to the Committee on Procedures and Privilege last year after he allegedly voted on behalf of um, his ministerial colleague Catherine Zappone. Um and so um, there's going you to be can loads see how more easily people. it would happen. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's one of those things whereby there are certain things and procedures and behaviours that happen in the doll that seem very unusual to the outside but are normalised in yeah. there doesn't mean they're normal or right but the more you just watch this unfold over the next week more and more people are going to I end th- up being pulled like, into it so many people are obviously doing this it's not like it's like when you're in school and you're like and it's just the huge that happens and you're like oh yeah well I just press the button do you know mm. that way it's, it's you're like you don't see it as a real break and then when it comes out you're like oh shit this is a scandalous one of the things that they proposed a while ago to kind of have people voting um, in this electronic voting uh, process that they do is that you'd have to have your ID uh, the TDs would have to have their IDs to vote and one of the reasons why that was shot down was that TDs might lose their IDs <laughs> you know like every single person who has a fob or a swipe pass into their office just managed to hold on to it managed to hold on to it um, maybe they should get a public services card <laughs> Thing. Um, this is a mad story. Uh, the Hillary Clinton um, one this week about how she was talking about how uh, Russia was quote unquote grooming Tulsi Gabbard as a third party candidate. This was a really. I mean, when I first read it, I thought, God, this story is absolutely crazy. So it's then it's about the distinction about making, of course, Russia will probably want a third party candidate mm. and there'll be, you know, there'll be plenty of kind of bot activity and online disinformation and all and that kind of stuff. Putin made that gas comment, not so gas effect. Oh, of course, we're going to intervene this election. Yeah. So it's, you know, hiding <laughs> in plain sight. But there is a difference, I suppose, with what Hillary Clinton's, you know, potentially accusing Tulsi Gabbard of being as somebody who's kind of more of um, an, a Russian asset as opposed to somebody who they can use without her knowing to influence the election. Um, so I thought that was a kind of a bonkers thing to say, unless oh. she has actual proof of it. No she doubt. Did, and she didn't name her, though. Mm, I think she did, did she? No, she didn't. Uh, okay. But then I think she, uh, Tulsi came back. But... I wouldn't trust my facts either. I'm I dive in and out. But another thing, you just never. This is something that I grapple with in real life. You never know who is controlling you without your knowledge. Mm-hmm. In term, like if we are in this uh, simulation, yes, as for, of, uh, which we have proved as per last week's um, astrophysicist talking to us about simulation theory. But yes, everyone is pulling strings somewhere on someone. Yeah, and I mean, I think that um, you know. There was a lot of stuff around Jill Stein in the last election in terms of, you know, certain um, theories about how uh, Russian, you know, 
like bot farmy type folks were kind of pushing her to uh, steal or gain some not steal uh, gain some votes um, that Hillary otherwise would have got um, but but Jill Stein has come out and just told Hillary Clinton to stop peddling conspiracy theories to justify her failure instead of reflecting on the real issues of the Dems um, so that was kind of a mad intervention by Ms. Do you think Rodham Hillary's Clinton. just gone bananas? I don't. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I don't Come know. on, Ian, what do you think? Come I on. <laughs> Spill the know. tea. No, I don't. Clearly, you've been in the WhatsApp group. I do not know. Okay, what's, um, you've been on Signal to her at least. <laughs> I have not. Um, my favourite food, your favourite <laughs> food, potatoes. Oh my God. I saw this headline and like I literally nearly wept. Potato crop is at risk and only 30% of potatoes in Ireland have been harvested due to double the amount of rainfall. I heard a report, I think, on a Morning Ireland about this on the rare occasion that I listened to the radio in the morning. Um, and yeah, this crazy rainfall and yeah. um, I'm looking at climate a, change. P- there's pictures on RTE of a lone potato floating <laughs> in a muddy puddle. Oh my God, imagine life without potatoes. As a side, like this is obviously devastating for the farmers and et cetera, et cetera. But as a sideline, I went to Clumbrazel House the other night. Oh, they're hash browns. Hash brown chips. Yeah. Mother of Divine Jesus. Yeah, they're unbelievable. Unreal. Um, yeah, they actually remind me of one of my favourite... Heaven. ...but um, recently departed potato dishes in Dublin, which were the millionaire fries from Bear uh, on South William Street. Yeah, they're unreal. Yeah. And just speaking of departed food, I know this is absolutely not related, but I've been on the search and I can't find it. I just have this craving now that I'm a vegetarian a week. Um, remember you used to get that fish boil in the bag with parsley sauce? No. Oh my God. Also, it was that's not being a vegetarian. Pescatarian, whatever. Okay. Potato, potato. <laughs> mm, potatoes. <laughs> um, but if anyone knows about this boil in the bag fish with parsley sauce, hook us up because I am sweating for it. This is almost as good as your request for <laughs> wine pairings with coddle. <laughs> Tom the- Durley was sitting beside me in the restaurant last night. I was about to tell him thanks for the recommendation. Didn't. Chicken out. <laughs> The county this week is County Brexit. Tenuous? Us? Never. And Andrea has set herself the mammoth task of outlining the Brexit facts. Andrea, hit me up. Well, it turns out, in retrospect, when you look back on Brexit, it's not that complicated at all. It's been a very clear path to get here. Sure. It started in... 1973, when the UK joined the EC. Note it was EC, not EU. I don't know when it changed, but anyway, that's not in my facts. So tough look. The Conservative Party, UKIP, and then the cross-party People's Pledge campaign pressured David Cameron, him of the pig-loving, to hold a referendum on continued EU membership. Bullying works, apparently, so he went ahead and did it. He was a Remainer um, and... When the vote happened on the 23rd of June 2016, three years now, by a majority, uh, it came through as a majority of 51.9, what a scabby amount, to 48.1% to leave. As a result, Cameron decides this is in bits and resigns um, as he campaigned for Remain and Theresa May took power. On the 29th of March 2017, the UK government invoked Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union, formally starting the withdrawal. 
May called a snap general election in June 2017, resulting in a conservative minority group. And this is kind of this is kind of key to our episode today, but also maybe what's happened in Northern Ireland this week. Uh, it was held up by the DUP, who have been like there was a tweet about what the DUP have achieved since they've been holding up the Tory government. And it was like um, marriage equality, abortion, <laughs> <laughs> like this list of a whole. It's like, wow, well done, guys. You've really <laughs> laid your cards out. Um, there was three more other things, but I can, obviously can't remember. I'm going to get some memory tablets. The UK was due to withdraw on the 29th of March 2019. It didn't. May negotiated to leave the EU customs union and single market. Mm, that's a kind of agreement we've heard recently, isn't it? Uh, resulting in the 2018 withdrawal agreement. And I think there was an amazing uh, tweet as well. Thank God for Twitter, actually. I like like tuning into the positive side, but it was literally like uh, when Boris presented his deal, it was like, this is like working in an office where you've presented this idea three times and then suddenly as a woman and then a man steps up and says the same thing and goes like, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, it's literally every woman in that situation. But... The UK Parliament voted against her withdrawal agreement three times, which has led to the deadline being extended twice. Um, the EU declined to renegotiate without the Irish backstop. Thanks a million EU. Um, on the 24th of May, May resigns and has succeeded. Succeeded is a wrong word. Power is taken over by Boris Johnson. I just can't you succeed with him. Boris promises to leave the EU in October with or without a deal. He's putting his foot down. On the 28th of August, August, Boris then announces his plan to end the current season of Parliament in September, which obviously is a shitty thing to do because it's taking any debate about all the agreements and the uh, shenanigans that are going to be going on with Brexit off the table of the Parliament. But, However, on the 24th of September, the Supreme Court uh, rules unanimously that Boris Johnson's decision to advise the Queen to prorogue Parliament was unlawful and that the pro prorogation stinger of a word itself is therefore null and of no effect so that, that doesn't seem to have done anything anyway it's just like oh yeah grand that's a stinger isn't it on October 17 2019 a revised withdrawal agreement with a change backstop was agreed by the EU and the UK government so that's like literally five days ago then on the 19th of October Prime Minister Bar Johnson sends two letters he's been instructed by a court to send a letter to um, ask for an extension by um, a case that was brought against him. So he sends two letters to the President of the European Council, Donald Tusk. One says, uh, which is stated to be from the UK Prime Minister, but is not signed. And it refers to the requirements of the Ben Act and requests an extension until the 31st of January 2020. And the other one, the little sneak, is signed personally by him and copied to all council members and states that it is his own belief that a delay would be a big mistake and requests support Uh, from the President and the Council members for his continuing efforts to ensure withdrawal without an extension. The letters are delivered by the British Permanent Representative in Brussels together with a cover note signed by himself which affirms that the first letter complies with the Ben Act. Strategy, strategy, strategy. The current withdrawal date is the 31st of October 2019 and we stand and wait. Andrea, I have never heard a clearer analysis and breakdown of Brexit timeline. Well, there you go. Watch out, Brussels. (laughs) (laughs) Our county rep this week is a hark back to a clip that I return to again and again. 
outlining Brexit basically and what everyone feels about it. Take it away, County Rep. Danny Dyer. Going back to that, this, this whole Brexit thing, when, when, when mm. you know, you're judging them on, on, on Brexit, they don't know nothing about it. Who knows about Brexit? Yeah, quite. Uh, no one's got a fucking clue what Brexit mm. is, yeah? You watch Question Time, it's comedy. Were you no clearer when Jeremy Corbyn no, explained No, I got Labour's a clue. Policy. No one knows what it is. It's like this mad riddle that no one knows what it is, right? So what's happened to that twat David Cameron oh. who called it on? <laughs> Let's be fair. Oh. I think what? you're referring no, to no, our no, former no, Prime no. Minister. Yeah, but why, how comes he can scuttle off? He called all this on. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He, he has no regrets. Where's he, where is he? He's in Europe, in Nice, with his trotters up, yeah? Where is the geezer? I think he should be held account for it. You know what? He should be held you know account it's for a, it. It's a valid point. A lot of people do feel... Twat. That, ...that all politics... This week's question surrounds a political party that feels central to Brexit constantly... But what about their behaviour before and during the Brexit referendum? Have we, in that sense, forgotten about the DUP? That may sound a bit weird considering that we talk about the DUP constantly, but back in February 2017, a journalist called Peter Gagan Uh, who is the investigations editor of Open Democracy and author of a book on the Scottish independence referendum as well, and another journalist, Adam Ramsey, began to publish stories about the dark money that influenced the Brexit referendum. The headlines from that time, they really read like, you know, plot points in a thriller. Secret donor links to the Saudi intelligence service. The strange link between the DUP Brexit donation and a notorious Indian gun running trial. DUP Donaldson can't remember why his Brexit campaign spent more than £32,000 on controversial data analytics company linked to Trump. The new Brexit minister, the arms industry, the American hard right and Equatorial Guinea. Mystery deepens over secret source of Brexit dark money. This was juicy stuff. But in the breakneck speed of brexit fueled British politics, the shenanigans that occurred during that referendum have been sidelined to some extent, despite the ongoing work of journalists like Peter and Carol Cadwallader and so on. So let's do something that the hourly news cycle of Brexit doesn't necessarily allow for. Let's take a breath and go back. Let's go back to those stories about the DUP and dark money in that referendum campaign and pick back up those threads that threaten to unravel so much but have become tangled out of sight as the daily chaos in Westminster takes hold. On United Ireland Today to talk to us about the links between the DUP, dark money and the Brexit referendum is the author of those stories, Peter Gagan. So Peter, let's go back to that story or the kind of genesis of those stories around one particular large DUP donation and also just the dark money surrounding the um, Brexit referendum in general and how you guys at Open Democracy got into it. Well, it actually kind of all emerged really from the referendum itself. I was, I kind of became interested in this donation and the DUP's role in the Brexit referendum when I was, co- I was actually working for the Irish Times uh, covering the referendum kind of in Scotland, the north of England, in the kind of run-up to the vote. And I was in Sunderland about two or three days before the referendum and Sunderland later became like this kind of poster child of Brexit. And I was writing a piece like reporting from Sunderland about what the mood was like on the ground. And I was, as I was returning from Sunderland, 
London, getting the train back into Newcastle. I was sitting on the, the metro, the kind of suburban train, and I, fa- I picked up a copy of the free newspaper of the same name. And on this free newspaper was a big, huge wraparound ad saying, vote leave, take back control. And on the back, it had the DUP's logo. And I thought that was quite curious. I was like, well, why is the DUP uh, spending, you know, what would be a huge amount of money on advertisements in Sunderland that doesn't run in Sunderland? And to be honest, I kind of put that in the back of my head. I was aware, having worked in Northern Ireland before, I was aware that political donations in Northern Ireland are kept secret. I wondered if that was about it. I, I think I sent a tweet asking something like that. And then I kind of forgot about it. I kept on working and kind of just doing reporting and I reported through the referendum and on afterwards. And a few months later, uh, Adam Ramsey, a journalist of Open Democracy, kind of gave me a call saying, had I been interested, you know, he'd heard, he'd seen a tweet I'd sent about the DUP and wanting to kind of have a chat. And Adam is based in Edinburgh and during the referendum he had noticed in Edinburgh there was lots of placards being kind of around the central Edinburgh, vote leave, take back control. And again, they had the same imprint, the DUP's uh, name and address saying it was sponsored by the Democratic Unionist Party. And that's part of what you have to do in, in Britain. If you have a physical object, you have to say who's paid for it if it's political. And so the two of us started sitting down and trying to piece together what we could find out about the DUP's uh, electioning in Great Britain. because. Now, this is quite unusual. The Democratic Unionist Party normally only you know, stand for election in Northern Ireland. They really would never be part of a, a UK-wide campaign um, at any other time. So we started looking into it and we started like kind of trying to figure out how much this advertisement would have cost because this was a, a wraparound advert. We managed to figure out that it appeared basically in every place in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, not in Northern Ireland because the Metro newspaper doesn't circulate in Northern Ireland. And so, lo and behold, by piecing things together, we were able to find out that the DUP had spent at least a quarter of a million pounds on their Brexit campaign. Which is huge for a party of their size, yeah. To put it into context, there'd been, some of your listeners might remember, there was a Stormont election a few weeks beforehand where the DUP topped the poll, and they spent about 50 or 60,000 pounds on that entire election in Northern Ireland. So this was by, this was completely off the scale for a political donation in Northern Ireland. Um, And the reason that they were able to do this was because of this Northern Irish donor secrecy law. It's kind of a law dating back to the Troubles, this idea that you don't publish the names of political donors. And that had been going on, that had been there for a long time. There'd always been, there'd been campaign groups, uh, Friends of the Arts had campaigned about to try and change the legislation, but nothing had really happened. And I think one of the reasons nothing had happened was because there'd never been a real kind of obvious example of abuse. But the Brexit referendum was different. Unlike a normal general election where you have a constituency and you can spend money in a constituency, the whole of the United Kingdom was one single constituency for a Brexit referendum. That meant for the first time you could spend money through a Northern Irish party but campaign in the UK. And we subsequently discovered that the Democratic Unionist Party got a donation of £435,000 for its Brexit campaign. And it spent all but £10,000 of that in Great Britain. So it spent almost nothing in Northern Ireland. This huge big donation had all gone into campaigning in Great Britain. And obviously, like because referendum is so rare in the UK, this was kind of a new thing, I guess, a new way of how campaigning money will be spent. Yeah, that's one of the big things about the Brexit referendum. Because it was so unusual, it was the first UK-wide, well, there was a UK-wide referendum in 2011 on the alternative vote, which wasn't particularly successful or or much picked up upon. But really, this was the first big all-UK referendum. So the kind of laws and the regulations around it just weren't really, to be honest, fit for purpose. They weren't really kind of, they they hadn't really been thought out all that much. They hadn't thought how campaign groups would seek to work around them. And we actually saw this across the Brexit referendum. There's been a series of findings 
since that a number of major campaigns, predominantly on the Leave side, uh, broke electoral law in lots of different ways. And one of the reasons ways they were one of the reasons they were able to do that was both that the camp the referendum itself was quite a novel thing, and also in Britain a lot of kind of a lot of the reasons for why political parties tend to try not to break electoral laws that when they stand the next time it doesn't look good for them for a party to be found guilty of breaking electoral law looks bad mm. in a referendum these campaigns disappear you know who do you call when you want to contact vote leave uh, the day after you know or the kind of even the day after a referendum because they just kind of pack up and go away so there isn't the same there isn't the same onus in kind of keeping it honest either because these campaigns just they disappear into the ether so the DUP um, spend around a quarter of a mil on this massive wraparound ad on the Metro newspaper, um, which is on all of the like trains and the tube and all that kind of stuff. And obviously the next question is, where who donated that money? Where did it come from? And, and there, you know, obviously it's kind of hard to discern those kind of things and, and um, you know, the, the, the detail around that. But this group, the Constitutional Research Council, uh, came into play in your reporting. What is that group? Well, this is where the DEP money well came from. At least this is the this is the the organisation that gave the money to the Democratic Unionist Party. It's the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds quite grand, but really it is actually a, it's what's called in, in British electoral law an unincorporated association, which also sounds quite grand. Basically, it means an organisation that has no legal standing really at all. We could call ourselves, you know, um, the United Ireland uh, or unincorporated association right now because it doesn't have any. Yes. It has no. Legal standing. <laughs> let's do it and we can give money to political parties and we barely have to be regulated it's quite amazing and so really what happened was the DEP eventually the DEP had to kind of they came under a lot of pressure so they said that the money had come from the Constitutional Research Council and basically the Constitutional Research Council is a group that's only got one person whose name is actually attached to it a man called Richard Cook who used to be the vice chairman of the Scottish Conservative Party had been a multiple a kind of serial unsuccessful Scottish Tory outside of Glasgow um, and had quite an interesting business history and so this guy kind of comes out of nowhere as the person who's given the DUP £435,000 but Mr Cook himself admits that it's not his money. He did not give the DUP £435,000. The Constitutional Research Council gave the DUP £435,000, which begs a really good question, which is, who gave the Constitutional Research Council, i.e. Mr. Cook, £435,000? We don't know. That's never been and that's never been made public. One of the reasons we don't know about that is because of the same law that says that uh, Northern Irish donations are secret. Which remarkably, if you anybody um, le- kind of leaks information or you puts information in the public domain to do with an Northern Irish political donation from that period, you can face up to six months in prison. So it's quite it's it's quite a strenuous law. So there's not no one's ever kind of broken cover and said this is where this money has come from. So we still don't know. No, we're still no kind of closer to knowing where this massive, uh, you know, really, actually a really significant amount of money into the Brexit referendum came from because British politics is more like Irish politics in terms of the amount of money. You know, it's it's not like America. It's not billions of dollars. It's not tens of millions of dollars. It's hundreds of thousands of pounds. You know, fifty thousand pounds will get you a dinner with with uh, the prime minister. So four hundred fifty four hundred thirty five thousand pounds in the scheme of British politics is a lot. Mm. Now, while you, while we still don't know who actually you know lodged the money or wrote the check or whatever, what kind of people were donating to 
any of the kind of multiple leave campaigns? Well, it's interesting that one of the kind of, if you look at the, the Brexit referendum in general, where money came from, what kind of, what basically happened was in the run up to the referendum, a lot of what will be kind of traditional Conservative Party donors. So the kind of big business donors, uh, the kind of what we'd see as like kind of the patrician kind of capitalist class of, of British democracy. They were quite resistant to get involved with this referendum at all. And David Cameron started kind of shaking them and he got bits of money out of them. We didn't get a huge amount of money out of them, actually. Uh, and he kind of struggled. The Remain campaign, most of its money came from one Labour donor, Lord Sainsbury, donated more than £4 million. And that was where the bulk of the money for the Remain campaign came from. On the Leave campaign, it was quite different. It was a lot of kind of what you would see as um, a lot of people from what, the world of hedge funds, a lot of people from kind of financial speculation you saw a lot of money kind of flooding in from people who'd either given money to UKIP before or people who were kind of on the right of the Tory party in particular there's a guy called Aaron Banks who some of your listeners might have heard of and Aaron Banks was you know this kind of a business uh, kind of seen as a, an insurance businessman widely cited has been fantastically wealthy and he kind of came out of nowhere to give money to UKIP in 2014 he kind of said he made this grand gesture he said he was going to give UKIP £100,000 uh, and then William Hague, who at the time was the, um, the leader of the House of Commons, he'd never heard of Aaron Banks. So Aaron Banks said, I'm going to give them a million pounds. And then he bankrolled this uh, referendum campaign called Leave.eu, which was kind of one of the two big referendum campaigns. And he spent millions of pounds on the Leave campaign, which is quite unusual for someone to come out of nowhere and spend so much money. And subsequently, there's been a lot of questions raised about just how much money Aaron Banks has. You know, he, he was widely cited to be worth like 250 million. Lots of journalism, Bloomberg did a big report, the Financial Times looked into him. Lots of people kind of came out of it going, he's not worth that much money. And so there's been lots of questions about just where and how much money was spent during the Brexit campaign and kind of a corollary to that is like you know one you've got one kind of question about where did someone's money come from where did they spend it and how did it you know where did this money come from but you've also got this kind of kind of I think even more worrying question is that people who you don't really know people who are quite faceless can spend money in politics and actually have a huge impact you know the referendum was a very tight result. It was 52-48. You know, these pe people spending money, especially online, especially on like kind of mass advertisement campaigns, you know, that they, they're quite successful things. The reason people do it. And the ability of quite a small number of often quite well-heeled people to spend significant amount of money during the Brexit referendum is, was kind of ignored at the time. People didn't really think that much about it. And I think it's only in retrospect that you look at it and go, well, you know, how does that work in a democracy? How does that kind of start to like you know is it okay for people to spend three four five million pounds as Aaron Banks did uh, to effectively try and buy a political outcome and in this case quite successfully hedge funds and financial speculators and um, those kind of folks why would those kind of people want to fund a campaign that would lead to Britain leaving the EU we're told over and over again of the um, the financial difficulties that that or the difficulties that will cause the British economy, um, and of course, you know Nigel Farage has a background in uh, commodity brokering and and uh, currency uh, broker as well. I think. Um, why would those kind of people want to fund something that was that we're told would have dire financial consequences for a country? 
It's quite interesting. I think this whole issue of who bank, who's kind of bankrolling things like this is, is really fascinating. We had, in the last few weeks, some of your listeners might have heard, there's been this like talk about our hedge funds like shorting sterling and are they using mm. Boris Johnson as a way to get a no-deal Brexit? I actually, I, I'm not convinced by by that thesis. I think, I don't know if the, I don't think what I see in terms of, of short positions on the market, I'm not convinced that stands up. What I think is happening is actually much more deeper and far more interesting and worrying actually what you have with financial capital and hedge funds is basically you know if you think about it hedge funds made a lot of money what they do is they they do what they say they hedge they try and take positions in the market to make to make maximum returns so a lot of hedge funds made a lot of money and they can make money when things go down they made a lot of money when the financial crash happened and the one thing hedge funds like is volatility Volatility is good for hedge funds. So when markets move a lot, hedge funds make money. And the last 10 years since the financial crisis have been really bad for hedge funds, really, in general. It's been very difficult to make money. Interest rates are zero. There's a negative interest rates in places. Growth is flat. It, even, you know, it's, it's hard to make money uh, speculatively in the way that you could in the past. And what you've got with hedge funds is this really interesting kind of mix of, I think, personal uh, interest in terms of, like, it's good for business if things, are, if things go crazy and they can go crazy up or crazy down it doesn't really matter it's good for business but also you've got a personal kind of ideological interest in this hedge funds tend to be not the pinstripe suits of the city they're kind of they see themselves as anti-establishment which is kind of crazy because they're very rich a lot of these hedge fund guys you know chris benodi is the most famous guy who bankrolled the leave he spent money on the leave campaign Chris Maloney made 220 million overnight on referendum night, shorting Sterling, even though he backed the Leave campaign. This you know, came so out in the uh, this came out in the the Bloomberg piece on the Brexit short, was it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, and what you saw was you know the opportunities to make money in in and that's that's what's hap- what what's what the thing what's one of the driving forces behind this. There's a lot of opportunities to make money in markets that are volatile. But what you see with people like that is also a personal kind of interest, an ideological belief in uh, shrinking the stage, in deregulation, in a kind of what we'd see as a very American model of capitalism. And I think it's fascinating to see what's happened in Britain over the last few years. You know, during the referendum itself, it was all about immigration. That was everybody was talking about immigration, immigration. Turn on your TV now, almost nobody in Britain's talking about immigration. They're talking about free trade deals. They're talking about free trade deals and regulation. These are the kind of things hedge funds like. And what you've got now with the Conservative Party is the Conservative Party's donors, all the pro-European businesses have left the Conservative Party's donors and the Conservative Party is now really reliant on kind of hedge fund money. And that's a really strange place to have it where you've got a political party that's a very large party, the party that's been a dominant political party for the history of Great Britain, and it's it's kind of reliant on this small group of, of, of sectional interests who have an interest, I think, in, mar- in, in volatile markets and also a personal ideological interest in this. They kind of see themselves as Gordon Gecko types, you know, the kind of Wolf of Wall Street. They're striding the world, doing buccaneering, free trade deals, you know, global Britain, all that sort of stuff. So it all kind of gets pulled in together. This is so interesting because I think you're right, like a lot of people will notice that shift in terms of the commentary around um, Brexit um, with regards to all the stuff around, you know, privatisation, deregulation, workers' rights, um, getting out of the EU so that those things can kind of become more Americanized, I suppose. Um, and I know that you're particularly interested in the Americanization of, of, of British politics um, around funding streams. 
for example, but also around the discourse um, that that the media is participating in now. You had a piece in the Guardian um, last week around this, the you know the number ten source thing and how media is being played. How do you think that that intersection of what is actually happening in the Americanization of the type of politics and the money in the politics is then locking in with the media coverage? I think it's very interesting, actually. Yeah, I think yeah, you're 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 bang on this. I think, and I'm I've been really interested in this for a while. Is you know what you're seeing in Britain is this increasingly kind of Americanized way of doing politics. So on one level, that's money. You know, we, we, it's a it's a system. The British system runs on money, uh, like America's does, although it's less money. So you're seeing an increase in money. You're seeing an increase in what we call dark money, which is money from anonymous sources, like the DUP donation, money that we don't know where it's coming from, coming into the political system. But at the same time, I also think we're seeing this, like like you're kind of outlining there, Una, which is this kind of increasing. Um, Kind of the twenty four seven rolling news. It's kind of you know it's it's like watching um, election night in in the United States more and more turning on your television here. You know we have Super Saturday last week about you know which is kind of a, a recall of Parliament becomes Super Saturday. The surrender bill. The European Research Group become the Spartans. You know it all. It's a lot of a lot of fighting metaphors, a lot of sports metaphors, which really would kind of chime at any time you turn on you know CNN, turn on Fox News, and even the way you know the countdown clocks you see on Sky News or on other broadcasters, the way um, media has been kind of narrated is increasingly American. And I think part of that as well is this focus on personalities and theatre. And I'm sure a lot of Irish audiences who I think have really been following Brexit very closely have become probably like myself, been quite frustrated with the kind of personalisation of Brexit into people rather than processes. You know, a lot of people in Ireland are concerned about what it means for Ireland, what does it mean for the border, what does it mean for East, West, North, South. That doesn't really play out very well. It play into like the kind of originally it was Theresa May, the Iron Lady. Now it's Boris Johnson, and there's a kind of constant fixation on personalities and the idea that a person and a and a person's ego can overcome what are kind of process driven uh, driven events. So you know Boris Johnson can come in and he is the man who can deliver Brexit, despite all of these you know these kind of uh, martial forces against him. Whereas in reality, what you have is a very very complicated uh, set of processes and negotiations uh, that, you know, that really kind of... the personalities matter in terms of what happens to them but by kind of narrating everything as political theatre it becomes it just becomes a kind of a kind of a kind of a war of goodies and baddies and this reliance on anonymous briefings is what we're seeing more and more in British politics so we've got this kind of anonymous sources almost everybody believes all of these things come from Dominic Cummins the kind of Machiavellian force behind Boris Johnson and behind uh, Vote Leave the official Leave campaign but what they do as well is they allow the British government to put things into the ether so they can say you know Boris Johnson had a big falling out with Angela Merkel on the phone as he did said a couple of weeks ago but without having to claim responsibility for them so the, the British government can kind of fly kites it can put ideas is into the ecosystem, which then are picked up by, you know, newspapers, picked up by broadcasters, peripherated around the web. You know, they kind of feed into narratives. And they, in this case, they really feed into this narrative of Boris Johnson as this strong man against the European Union. And that, I think, is becoming a really, really kind of dangerous part of uh, kind of British political debate, because there's, the conversation is less and less around policy details, around what these things actually mean, and more around kind of competing narratives. And I think the media is... is 
it's, it's falling into a lot of traps on this because because they're not getting the access they used to get because they're not getting on the record briefings they used to get they're relying more and more on anonymous sourcing and i think it's it's quite um it it kind of continues, I think, as well to erode the trust in the audience about what they're hearing because they don't. They can see this as a, as a biased position. They can see it as an attempt to spin a kind of partisan narrative. Right, because you have the situation where coverage moves from analysis to speculation, and speculation isn't fact. <laughs> so you can exactly. basically say whatever you want. There's huge, and, and what you've also seen is this huge kind of upsurge since the Brexit referendum in, the, in these kind of, you know, I wouldn't even call them commentators, basically partisan political advocates, you know, often quite young, who just appear on television. They don't have any, they rarely have any analysis, but they have a very solid partisan position. Um, and they will just argue, uh, they will just argue from a partisan point of view without any kind of, without any kind of aware knowledge or insight to bring to a discussion. And that's becoming more and more a part of kind of what what's passing for political discourse. I think underneath that is also this problem of, especially with the BBC, of, of balance, of kind of the sense that you need to have, if someone says the sky is blue, you need to have someone who says the sky is green. And that's really kind of, I think, is has kind of contributed to what you end up with. So you end up with a couple of partisan commentators arguing partisan points rather than, uh, so it's all uh, heat but almost no light. And endless speculation on, you know, will the bill pass? So this is what we've seen over the last uh, few days. Um, um, you know, this huge speculation about will this bill pass, far less discussion about what is in the actual bill, which is a huge bill for the future of the United Kingdom. There's, you know, this um, the, the withdrawal uh, agreement bill has got huge ramifications for the, you know, probably even the medium, if not long term future of the UK. And instead, we're just arguing about, you know, how many Labour rebels might support it, how many Tory rebels might not. So there's huge problems here and, and, you know, obviously the British media is walking into kind of what would be early stage um, uh, American media, kind of maybe late 90s, early 2000s on the on the prioritisation of punditry and speculation and binary um, positions and, and uh, punch and judy arguments on, on TV networks, for example. That's happening. Um, it's also happening in very reputable uh, uh, media outlets, which is very worrying. But to go back to the money, um, the dark money, the donations in the referendum, you know, this is something that I'm really interested in because it feels that the story even though the likes of yourself Carol Cadwallader other journalists Bloomberg and so on have been continuing to dig on this there is a sense that maybe this story has been a little bit lost Um, and has the horse bolted on this is there an appetite for going back to examining the legitimacy or lack thereof of that referendum, considering the process has now kind of taken over uh, into another wave of, of um, stuff around, you know, getting Brexit done, whatever that means. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think I think it's been quite striking, you know, that that how difficult it has been to get some of these stories aired. You know, when I started, I'm, I was really surprised when I started working on these stories, probably kind of would have been early 2017, just how little had been done on any of this. You know, I would have assumed that all of these issues around funding and this huge referendum would have been dug into extensively. And actually, it was a huge, big open, you know, kind of open plane, which I've spent, I ended up spending the guts of two years kind of trying to excavate. And, you know, Carol and others have done really good work as well. There's been some, you know, some good journalists at, at BuzzFeed and, and, and other outlets. But in general, I do think it's struggled to get on to the news agenda. I think it's, it's, 
part the rig, a big reason the short answer is is political as well you know because often what you will have is you will have a political champion for a story especially if a story is looks bad for the government and um, the politics i think particularly of the labor party have played a part in this i think you know the labor party in, in great britain has has tried to this you know has, has tried to ride this post-referendum horse uh, you know and, and kind of try and, and, and be bo- all things to all men part of that has been a, I think a huge um, kind of disinclination to get engaged with questions around legitimacy to referendum I think that's played into it too I think certainly broadcasters have been wary as well Channel 4 have done great work on it but I think other broadcasters have been wary for the same reason there's a sense of well our audience voted for Brexit you know 52% voted for Brexit you know is this against the will of the people my 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 concern with it though isn't just that it's also the, the much broader concern because if you look at all the things that we found out that were wrong with the referendum you know the kind of overspending the use of targeted advertisements the use of dark money the use of third party campaigning that's actually happened again and post-referendum and could happen far more you know to a much greater degree in future uh, British elections and referendums the system in Britain is actually really really um, porous and has a huge capacity I think to be influenced by by money uh, and by kind of forces from outside that that really no one's keeping track of you know I've spent a lot of time over the last few years looking at things like lobbyists looking at kind of think tanks that are really just kind of campaign groups and how they're able to influence a political process since Brexit and there's huge uh, there's, you know a tiny amount of money in Britain would buy you a huge amount of access and that hasn't changed if anything it's got worse since the referendum so you've got on one hand you've got the kind of the continuing problems to do with 2016 but actually if we had another referendum tomorrow you'd probably see the exact same problems if not worse happening again and I think that's almost the most uh, kind of uh, kind of frightening and aspect of all this, and the bit that kind of makes it look most like America is that actually money and influence could be, continue uh, to play an even greater role in British politics. So, Peter, two easy questions for you then on the back of that: What are the solutions? <laughs> uh, how do you fix British politics and the processes therein? And what ha- what what do you think is going to happen next? Basically, if people don't kind of stop everything and start to repair uh, or or kind of block these pores? Well, in terms of solutions, there's, there's actually quite a lot of you know technical uh, solutions that could be brought in you know at a at a kind of a drop of a hat really um, so for example in britain there's no regulation along around online campaigning so the, we have laws in britain to poll for elections that are about 20 years old they were all written before the digital age so you don't have to kind of you don't have to talk at all about your digital campaigning so whereas if i put a flyer through your door it has to have my you know my details on it who i am what political party i am if you put an ad online you don't have to do any of that that you can just put, you don't have to put any messaging on, you don't have to show anything about how you spent money, anything like that, which makes it really easy to spend money online in ways that kind of distort democracy. So that could be changed with a drop of a hat. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of new kind of, um, it wouldn't be that difficult to bring in new legislation that would address things like uh, the possibility to bring dark money into British politics, to kind of introduce anti-money laundering checks into political parties. So you couldn't, you know, you can't just say, as some parties have done, like the Brexit party, just set up a PayPal account and just take as much money as you want from a PayPal account, you know, without any real tests of where these people are coming from. So there's lots of, there's lots of concrete steps you could do. 
But the big problem with that is um, you require politicians to do them. And politicians so far have shown absolutely zero inclination to do anything about this. And that's actually almost a, a cross-party thing because almost all politicians think that they can gain the system to their own advantage. They think that they were able to use the, the kind of loopholes that are there in the system to, to kind of further their own interests. So there's n- almost no cross-party agreement on even doing something about uh, about the kind of holes in British democracy. There's just a kind of sense of, well, we, we're not going to kind of put our fingers in our ears and we'll just keep on going. So what you've got, you've got this kind of quite bizarre scene at the moment where all these different regulators who are involved with British politics, the Electoral Commission, the Data Watchdog, even like all party groups are all coming out and saying, we're in huge trouble here. You know, there's a huge problem here. I interviewed the head of regulation at the Electoral Commission recently and they said to me, you know, we could have an election soon that's not well run, which is their code for saying, you know, we could have an election that's basically, you know, is, is as close as they'll say to fraudulent, but no one wants to do anything about it. So that's 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 the that's the problem with the solutions, and I think that's unfortunately kind of the forward-looking bit of it. I think we're unlikely to see any huge change. You know what you saw. So, for example, you've seen all these people coming out saying we want change. The British government has only brought forward has recently brought forward one proposal for changing uh, for a change around elections in Britain. And that was to introduce mandatory ID to vote, which was not a, a, a solution that was called for by the Electoral Commission, not a solution called for by experts. Most academics think it's a very bad idea that you'll end up, you could end up like you have in America where it becomes, where you have to show ID to vote and it can end up basically suppressing votes. But that was the only issue that the British government so far has actually uh, tried to put on the agenda to do with electoral reform. Peter, this has been a fascinating chat and I think it go, it, it really kind of gets to the heart of the importance of um, looking back more than kind of trying to keep up with the new cycle issue that's just obsessed with forward motion and what's next and what's next. Um, and you're doing stellar work on all of this. But I was just wondering before you go, what are you up to at the moment? Well, I'm currently on, I'm about to go back to work with Open Democracy. I'm just finishing up a book about all of the things I've spoken about, which I think is going to be called Democracy for Sale. Uh, it's going to be published by Hedda Zeus, uh, hopefully early in the new year. So it's going to go through all of these different aspects from British democracy with also a bit of a look around uh, internationally as well. So yeah, that should be hopefully available uh, in the new year. Brilliant. Well, we'll have you back on to chat about that. Thank you so much, Peter. Keep up the great work. in our Get In The Sea segment today as a North American TV host brought to you by Via United. I don't know where I'm going with that. Anyway, I was in a very positive mood this week and as was Una and we couldn't figure out one thing to get in the sea. We were just like, God, the world is a shiny, happy place. The North has happened, etc, etc. So I sent out a few WhatsApp messages and uh, one that came back was um, somebody sent me (laughs) so let me go back James Kavanagh when it comes to autumn time loves his briquettes and he puts his briquettes on a cauldron or what what are they called coal bucket coal bucket (laughs) sounds very unglamorous and he lights I'd say James has a cauldron yeah he probably does and he lights the little what material would you say that is Plastic. plastic is it <laughs> plastic bell Andrew shouting from the corner. <laughs> plastic who asked you so he gets this little <laughs> lighter sets the little thing on fire and it burns and then it stops burning as soon as it opens and the briquettes fall into the cauldron and it, the challenge is if they all go in in one go and it's 
It's riveting social media content. It's what social media was invented for, obviously. Delightful. And then, uh, so this has been going on for, I'd say, like two years or whatever. And then on Twitter, uh, it was highlighted that somebody had responded to this and tagged in Dublin Fire Brigade and said, any chance you could jump in to discourage someone with loads of followers setting fire to things? <laughs> Some agent is going to attempt that over a carpet. And but the whole thing is that it's you're putting it in a bucket. Why would cauldron. you? Cauldron. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Why would you put your briquettes on a carpet and do that? It's so bizarre. So what is getting in the sea then, Andrea? So getting in the sea is Twitter snitches. Get a grip. Mind your own business and stop like, no. Let's just hope that person isn't a supporter on Patreon. <laughs> But also, like, don't you know if somebody's, like, bitching about you on Twitter and someone tags you in as well? I don't need to see that. Step away, Twitter snitch. Cop on. Get in the sea. Fave bits this week. My fave bit begins with an unexpected story from Donegal. The county in which Anoni, the amazing uh, Mercury-winning artist... Um, is building a studio in their ancestral home up there. Carrick, I think, which um, according to my Donegal girlfriend is somewhere near Killybags. I think that's what she said to me. Um, so that's cool. Uh, obviously, Donegal, fertile ground for art making. So I just enjoyed that little bit that was spotted on Donegal websites, things, Donegal News, Donegal Democrats, something like that. Does Sarah make you read that every day? <laughs> and drink fo- football special <laughs> yeah. listen to Daniel O'Donnell all of the above um, my other fave bits this week orientate around two fantastic singers who are playing in one is playing all, all over um, the country various different gigs um, okay so Amanda Palmer is on tour around Ireland uh, if you are in Cork or Limerick or Belfast or Dublin and you're kind of half thinking about going to one of these gigs go to it they are going to be brilliant she is an absolute boss and uh, the last show that I saw her play which was just after the uh, referendum actually last May was phenomenal so go see that and uh, Sinead O'Connor is playing Vicar Street uh, this weekend a Saturday or Sunday and Monday actually um, and she's just kind of on a new vibe at the moment and I'm digging it so I'm going to go see Sinead play on Sunday in Vicar Street so those are my fave bits and my final fave bit now obviously myself and Andrea give we do give the Dublin City Council good kicking on this show and most of the time it's warranted let's face it but they do really good stuff they also do really good stuff and um, one of their initiatives is my one of my fave bits this week. This is the Stony Batter greening strategy. They're inviting people in Stony Batter to take part in workshops and plans and all that kind of stuff with their neighbours to um, everything from like tree identification and mapping to having like new little um, preserving habitats and shrubberies and all that kind of stuff and just basically doing a greening strategy to make um, parts of the inner city greener. So good on you DCC those are my fave bits congratulations thank you my fave bits this week are first up Annie Atkins book fake love letters forged telegrams and prison escape maps designing graphic props for filmmaking is available from pre-order now Annie Atkins is the woman who made the aesthetic for Wes Anderson's Grand Grand Hotel Grand Budapest Hotel yeah Uh, potato potato Mm, potatoes Um, and (laughs) I absolutely love her newsletter that she she sends out this amazing newsletter all the time I would highly recommend it but also um, 
it's just so interesting the, the process that goes along with all the work that goes into the props of like these things and I am really looking forward to getting her book and you can get it now and actually she had a big shout out from no less than Jeff Goldblum who said Annie Atkins is a master craftswoman. She makes the unreal seem hyper real and the real more supremely alive. She is an absolute boss and she actually does these workshops um, and Jenna, who hi Jenna from Clement, works with her on them um, that you can sign up to and learn how to make these props as well. She's oh, just fat. Badly. And she's like in Dublin. It's amazing. Next up, clubbing is culture. It's a big weekend ahead for me. Uh, Grace is on on Saturday, which is my second time going to Grace and I'm very excited. Um, and Gerd Janssen, who... Crystal Clear defines as his Miyagi. He's playing in Wigwam on Sunday, so I'm very excited. Uh, usually they do a lot of back-to-back stuff and he uh, releases a lot of... Um, not a, He's released... Um, They're on the same label, right? Running Back, isn't it? Yeah, he releases yeah. loads of Dex music for him. Um, it's his label. Cool. Yeah. Gerd is amazing. I've seen oh. him before in Panorama. He's unbelievable. Yeah, he's DJ. so good. So I'm very excited to see him in Wigwam on Sunday. And I think there's still tickets left for that. I think Grace is sold out, though. And my last favourite fish. <laughs> I cannot cope. So, there's this woman called Angela Fahi, and her Instagram is angela.fahi.10. And she has this Instagram account that literally is catching people making uh, breaking rules on the road, like a cyclist maybe walking up a path the wrong way or a car stopping one metre over the line and it's after getting her Instagram is after getting a little bit of a cult following now um, because it is absolutely the most bananas shenanigans she is just so raging about everything uh, that's happening and tagging in Twitter snitching all uh, the police and everyone who could possibly be tagged in uh, to this and it's just I think you should go and have a look it's she has a busy day ahead. That kind of flies in the face of your Twitter. Well, I suppose it's not Twitter snitching. It's like rules of the road. No, but they're like, they're not like somebody was walking on the path with their bike and she filmed them and uploaded it onto her thing being like, you're breaking the rules. It's like, oh my God. Sorry, <laughs> was that very delayed? That was very loud in my headphones, Andrea. Anyway, <laughs> go watch her Instagram. I think you'll appreciate It's It's definitely worth a go. Can I have one more fave bit? Um, depends what it is. So my friend Connor Habib, who has an amazing podcast called Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Um, first of all, the podcast is awesome and you should listen to it if you're not already listening to it. Second of all, I'm on his podcast this week. Ooh. So um, check that out. For more dulcet tones from Una Malali, tune in to Connor Habib's podcast. I feel very American TV show host today. It's very odd. Anywho. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media. I'm sad that it's over, but there'll always be next week. With support from Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. You and can go on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just checking Angela's uh, Instagram. You can find links to all our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying listening, do let us know. We've been getting a lot of uh, messages of people's counties sending us pictures from their counties so I would like to encourage that further thank you and we're getting loads of um, positive vibes from our Armagh episode last week so everyone who who got on to us about that Evine especially hi thank you so much for listening and for being sound um, 
and I think that's all the messages from us today so all that's left is to bring you our tuna chicken roll I have to say it's unlike me I know but once I like a song I have it on repeat for about three weeks and everyone that knows me hates me for those three weeks and this is no um, what's that word deviation from that current practice. Thank you. Uh, Mango and Matt Mann with uh, Lisa Hannigan on stunning vocals with Deep Blue. It's just such a lovely mix of uh, a bit of rave, a bit of grime and a bit of angelic vocals. I just cannot get enough of it. So enjoy. I've been Una Mullally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United, United Ireland. Ireland. And that was Brexit. Brexit. Still the energy lights my soul But I'm still here despite my woes You know how it goes, it's the life we chose You were there from the start Again it was hard Dreams are moving on but it never works when they tear us apart Summertime and wear form Just another child to care for Care when there ain't much to care for Back into the road of the airport But I couldn't leave you be Your heart close to mine, I feel you breathe I belong in this deep blue sea I belong in this deep blue sea Either red lights or red line, blue lights are hard to sprawl. Give me war with a cop and a star, with a no with a name written all in the wall. Same old name that you hollered. Look into the lane where I followed. Looking for some change in the squalor. While we wave with the saints and the scholars. Another pipe for your mind to the sands of the strand, but we held the hand. She asked me, what's the plan? Said it on what will be grand I need to sleep. Far hard just to keep you free. You belong in this deep blue sea. You belong in this deep blue sea.